Welcome to the Unsettled Lives podcast. On this podcast, we'll be dusting off the history of Black communities in America. This bi-weekly podcast is about unearthing the hidden narratives of land loss, urban renewal, disinvestment, and gentrification among Black Americans. Welcome. Thanks for joining me on the second episode of Unsettled Lives and the first content-filled episode. I was so pleased to introduce myself and the purpose of this podcast in episode one, and I am like even more excited to open up the discussion around these communities that I have been exploring. So how are y'all doing? Um, I know this can be a time of mixed emotions for a lot of people. And I know that some folks really love this time of year. There's a lot of family time. There's a lot of excitement and colors and lights and all of that. And that can be a lot of fun. I enjoy that to some degree. And I know a lot of people also really struggle through it with the shorter, darker days and hectic family gatherings or lack thereof. You know, some folks are not gathering with their families and that can be upsetting too. And just overall obnoxious consumerism being thrown in our faces. That's a lot. I, yeah, as I said, I love this time of year because I like all the decorations and warm feelings, but winter is always such a rough season for me. And since moving down to the South, it has been so much better. I was living in Illinois and the winters there are brutal. And I am now living in New Orleans and I am enjoying 70 degree days in December. And I, have no regrets. <laughs> um, but yeah, I know that everybody does not have that luxury um, or, you know, not everybody really wants a warm winter. But I will say that, yeah, if you're struggling, you are not alone. And I hope that you can find a way to take good care of yourself, especially now in such a difficult time for everyone. This podcast is about history, but it's also about wellness, specifically communal wellness. And so while we should definitely do what we can to take care of ourselves, I'll ask this question, have you talked to a neighbor today? Yeah, have you talked to a neighbor today? We live such separate, individualistic, ugh, (laughs) it's a hard word, individualistic lives here in the U.S. But I'd encourage you to think about this. Have you talked to a neighbor recently, if not today? And if not your neighbors, maybe somebody else in your community. It's just a thought, you know, I think We're taught to keep everything to ourselves. We're taught to keep our feelings to ourselves. We're taught to keep our troubles to ourselves. But I'm going to be encouraging throughout the life of this podcast that we do something different, something that feels more 
natural and is allowing us to build necessary relationships. What I will say though, is that I am somebody who has struggled throughout my life with some forms of social anxiety. So I get it. Like we don't all want to talk to our neighbors (laughs) and neighbors can be a trip. So it doesn't, you know, it's not always a pleasant experience. I think that once again, I have the luxury of living in a place where people tend to be on the friendlier side. Um, And I know that's not the case everywhere. Um, But if you feel like you can build relationships with your neighbors or with other community members, I would just encourage you to think about how you might want to do that, especially if you're finding yourself a little bit more alone during this holiday season. Or if you're just in general thinking more about building community. Okay. So that's my thoughts on that. (laughs) Um, And speaking of community, let's go ahead and start talking about the first community, shall we? Today, we are talking about Eatonville, Florida. Some of y'all may have heard about this place due the, to the work of iconic Zora Neale Hurston. More on her in a little bit. I will admit that I have made my fair share of Florida, Florida man jokes. <laughs> Shout out to the show Atlanta for their Florida man skit that lives in my head rent-free to this day. But truly, this state has some rich Black history. And I'm so excited to dig into the history of this central Florida town. But first, let's take a deep breath and ground ourselves in some land acknowledgements. The area that we are talking about today is the territory occupied by the Timucua people who occupied Northern Florida and parts of Central Florida as well. They are still an existing nation, although they are not federally recognized. All of Florida was and is occupied by the Seminole tribe who are federally recognized. I found this information by using the native land map, which I'll share a link to in the show notes, and I'll share links to the website for each nation. Okay, let's dig in. Eatonville is a quiet town six miles north of Orlando. It's between Orlando and Winter Park, Florida, and it was the first incorporated Negro town in the U.S. We don't use that language anymore, but I'm going to use the historical term in this case. Eatonville was incorporated in 1887, and it's named after Josiah C. Eaton, who was a white man and one of a small group of landowners who was willing to sell land to black folks at the time. The land was purchased by a man named Joe Clark, a man who had reportedly dreamed of having an all black town. It's a great and very ambitious dream for the time. Joe Clark was a resident of nearby Maitland which had a black population, but wasn't a black town. 
And Maitland was really on board for the establishment of Eatonville because the white residents wanted the black folks to have their own separate place too. They were like, yes, <laughs> get out of here, which is terrible. But also, you know, at least in this case, I mean, I don't know the whole story of Maitland, so I can't say this for sure, but I appreciate that they responded with like not chasing people out violently, but instead they were like, let's help these folks create their own town and that's how we get rid of them. I wish that more of these situations would have happened this way as unfortunate as this attitude towards black people was. But anyway, because of the support um, from Maitland, Eatonville started off as a subdivision of Maitland. And from there, Joe Clark and other men spent time planning and discussing the establishment of this town at St. Lawrence AME Church. And that was the first unofficial part of Eatonville. Before Eatonville was Eatonville, the church was built and donated by Lewis Lawrence hence the name, St. Lawrence. And that is where planning for the town took place and boom. Well, I'm sure it wasn't that easy, but it did happen. Talking about segregation might make us real uncomfortable these days, understandable, but segregation was what kept Eatonville safe. For example, legally deeds couldn't be sold to anyone who wasn't black or colored, as they said back then. And I'm just going to take a minute to address these antiquated terms real quick. Um, I've already said Negro. I've already said colored. These are terms that we don't use anymore. There's been an evolution of the collective terms that we use for Black people, Black Americans specifically. And these terms may make us squirm a little bit these days because we've decided that they're not appropriate anymore and that there are more empowering ways to reference ourselves. We had a reclamation process with the title Black in the 1960s and 70s. And so Black is very much a term that is widely used. There are people who are uncomfortable with that term, so not everybody is happy. <laughs> and I am not somebody who prefers African-American personally, just because um, continental terms are not something that I enjoy. I recognize that we are a mixture of a variety of different places in Africa, many of us, most of us, all of us who are um, descendants of enslaved Africans. And I just personally don't feel tied to that umbrella term. It doesn't insult me. I just don't prefer it. Um, but I know that there are some people who don't prefer black. And there are some people who are not bothered by terms like colored and Negro, you know, some older folks. And that's okay. But um, yeah, I just want to address that real quick because I know that that can get confusing, especially if there isn't a lot of context around why we have 
these terms and names for ourselves. Anyway, that's all I wanted to say about that, and we're going to move on. Let's get back to Miss Zora Neale Hurston. Didn't I say we'd be back? May have heard about or read some of her works, such as Their Eyes Were Watching God, Mules and Men, and Barracon, which was released recently, actually, based on some of her unpublished research on Africaville in Alabama. But I just named a few of her works. Zora Neale Hurston was an incredible Harlem Renaissance era cultural anthropologist, folklorist, and author who did research and wrote fiction and nonfiction about the Gulf South, the Caribbean, and Central America, and particularly Black folks in all of those places. Literally my dream job. <laughs> but as the collector and keeper of stories from Eatonville, she was also a griot, G-R-I-O-T, which is a West African title of a storyteller who keeps and shares a community's stories and travels around different places sharing those stories to keep that place alive. I was introduced to Zora through her novel, Their Eyes Are Watching God. This is also a lifetime film starring Halle Berry as the main character, Janie Crawford. I don't have any other things to say about that. <laughs> it was a cute movie, but I, had a very meaningful experience with the book. I read it in a high school English class. We were given a selection of books to read and that was the one I chose. And I may or may not at the time have decided I was going to Howard University, which is a historically black university. Um, regardless, I was certainly leaning more towards owning my blackness. And as I mentioned in the first episode, that was definitely something that I struggled with growing up. And I certainly felt myself transforming and turning more towards accepting and celebrating my blackness in the last years of high school. And this book was a very instrumental part of it, it was transformative for me. It was especially transformative for me when I read it again when I turned 30. Um, oh my goodness. It's so much deeper when you're a grown woman. And I can say that this book will be meaningful to so many people. A lot of people read their eyes were watching God and feel a lot of things. I think as a black woman specifically reading a black woman centered book, seeing the different phases of a woman going from doing what her elders, what her guardians are telling her that she must do, how she must live, and then her making choices that she thinks are the right choices, but end up only deeply traumatizing her further. And then from that trauma, from that experience, she learns more about herself. And when the time comes for her to make decisions that are solely her own, she makes decisions that are based on 
her soul desires. Janie Crawford is amazing <laughs> as a character. And I am deeply inspired by the story and I will definitely read it again. There are a lot of books to read by Zora Neale Hurston. There's a lot out there. I am getting into Mules and Men and I just am listening to Dust Tracks On a Road, which is her autobiography. And there's a lot more I'd like to learn about her, but what I've learned so far is that she was incredible and I admire her so much. Zora was born in Alabama on January 7th, 1891, but her family moved to Eatonville when she was about two years old and her father, John Hurston, was the first mayor of the town. Zora herself has claimed that she was born there, and I get it. That was her home from when she was really young, and being in an all-Black town empowered her. Her parents had grown up in sharecropper communities, and while agriculture was still a huge part of life in and around Eatonville, Zora describes having all sorts of citrus and fruit trees in her yard as a child. Like, it was abundant from what I have read. And it's clear that the residents certainly had more ownership of their land and of their community than a lot of Black folks in other places at the time. So I can definitely relate to Zora just being like, this is where I'm from, forget Alabama, forget that plantation, sharecropper mess, like, I appreciate that. <laughs> By all indications, Zora was a really confident, strong-willed girl who grew up to be the same as a woman. She went to boarding school outside of Eatonville, but still in Florida, and attended Howard University and earned her Bachelor of Arts from Barnard College in New York. She returned to Eatonville as an adult to collect stories from her community, which she shared in books like Mules and Men and Every Tongue Got to Confess, Negro Tales from the Gulf States. Zora shared Eatonville and Black culture across the diaspora with the world. Storytellers are what keep places, people, things alive. This Stunning scholar lived off of grants and occasional jobs as a domestic worker. She passed away in 1960. You can read more about how she died and the search for her grave in Alice Walker's essay in search of Zora Neale Hurston. Alice Walker, another prolific black writer and activist, the author of The Color Purple, is a strong admirer and student of Zora's work. And during her search for Zora, she found that she had been buried in an unmarked grave in Fort Pierce, Florida, because when she died, she died impoverished and without the funds for a proper burial. In fact, it seems like her neighbors in the community that she was living in, she wasn't living in Eatonville, but she was in Florida, they raised the funds to even have her buried. 
Alice discovered that she may have died from malnutrition, which is horrifying, though that was also contested in the essay that Alice wrote um, by a community member. And as I understand it, Zora had a stroke the year before she died and likely was unable to care for herself and didn't have a good relationship with her family or the means to get outside care. Yeah, sometimes this lack of communal connection or family connection, I'll say family connection, I won't say, because the community came together to get her buried. But her family was estranged from her. They, they had an estranged relationship. And that, that sometimes is the case especially if we feel like an outsider. And I think Zora felt like an outsider in her family. She was the only one doing this kind of work and, and being this um, academician. And I can, I can imagine that she maybe felt like she just didn't belong in her family and her family didn't understand her why go through the stress of trying to convince your family of why you belong and why you should be respected. I get it. And I'm glad that she had a community to support her. And she also had many benefactors and donors throughout her life um, to support her work. But in the end, she did die very poor. I imagine that that was really hard for her, but she was still writing before she had her stroke, as far as I understand it, which is incredible. Alice Walker found her grave in a field of weeds and promptly bought a headstone for it because there was literally no headstone for this icon. Through this effort, Zora Neale Hurston was brought into public consciousness again. And now her grave, which has always been located in the Garden of Heavenly Rest Cemetery, is well taken care of and as a site for visitors to go and pay their respects. As I said, people know about Eatonville because of Zora. Fans of her work can come see her family home, visit the public library named after her, and celebrate her at the annual Zora Festival, which happens in January. It happens in January because Zora was born in January. And so they're celebrating around her birthday. And um, it's a, usually a celebration of her writing, bringing people together to read and discuss her books. It's bringing people together to celebrate the art of Eatonville that's happening now and to just come together and celebrate Eatonville. It's about Zora, but you can't celebrate Zora without celebrating Eatonville because she loved this place and it truly formed who she was. COVID put a damper on festivities, but it's happening again in 2022. I don't know about you, but I would love to go one day. It is not going to happen next year, <laughs> but fingers crossed for Zora 2023. I would love to go. If you also would love to go, let me know. I will give you my email at the end and would love to hear. Oh, and if you've gone, if you've been to a Zora festival, I would also like to hear about your experience. 
Thank you for everything, Zora. Like I said, truly an icon. Please read her work. You won't regret it. Fortunately, Eatonville is still here. It's still on the map. We're going to hear a lot about communities that no longer exist on Unsettled Lives. But I am happy to say that this town is not one of them. But that doesn't mean that there haven't been attempts to destroy it. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to talk a little bit about the I-4, Interstate 4 Highway Project led by Orlando County in 1987, which also happened to be Eatonville's centennial year. This was 100 years after it had been incorporated. Orlando County approved the expansion of the highway, which is situated as Kennedy Avenue through Eatonville. And they were approaching residents and working to buy the land of Eatonville residents. And they were talking about constructing four retention ponds in the town, which is insane. <laughs> it's a lot of places to hold water. It's not very pretty. <laughs> Retention ponds are important. I, I told y'all in the first episode, I studied urban planning, like they're important for stormwater runoff and all of that. And I assume that due to the fact that they were planning to expand the highway from two to five lanes, they definitely needed more places to keep stormwater runoff, which is literally just when it rains, when it floods, all of that, the water doesn't really have anywhere to be absorbed into the ground because there's pavement. And so we need places to direct the water, to collect the water, to prevent flooding. I said when it floods, we want to prevent flooding. That's what retention ponds are meant to help do. And so, um, they were wanting to construct four of those in the town. And the expansion of the highway would cut the community in half, which it's very small already. <laughs> so that would be dramatic. That would literally destroy the town. I got a lot of this information from the podcast in Eatonville Saga, the story of a historic Black town struggle to survive and thrive, which is really nice. I appreciate that there is a podcast talking about this experience and the dedication to preserving Eatonville. I just have a lot of feelings and thoughts about this whole thing because I know that this is something that's ended a lot of Black communities in the United States either building highways, expanding highways, like they always, I say they, let me be more specific. Planners, developers, city officials, county officials often select black communities to do this work because why not? <laughs> you know, it's it's like let's choose the most disenfranchised people to do this work in because if we try to do this anywhere else, we're going to have a problem. We can't try to do this in a white town. They have more money. They have more power. We're not going to get as far. So let's do this 
in the black town where there's not as much money and there's not a, as much power. It's literally picking on people who really need stable communities. And usually these highways are built to be of service to white suburbanites who need more infrastructure to help them commute into the cities that they work in from their homes in the suburbs. So I have a lot of feelings. I have a lot of feelings. This is not the end of my discussion of these feelings, but I'm going to end it here because we have more things to talk about. Anyway, Eatonville residents fought back by suing the county and emphasizing preservation of Eatonville as a historical area. But eventually expansion was approved and the town lost a hundred acres of its original layout. Hmm. This fight, however, sparked the Zora Festival and the historic district of Eatonville was placed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1998. And yeah, I just, encourage you again to check out an Eatonville Saga podcast where you can learn a lot more about this whole experience. Now here's a bit of the song Zora by artist Jamila Woods to lead us into this next section. Little boxes on the hillside, little boxes you can stick onto me, Today, Eatonville has a high poverty and unemployment rate, as well as a high rate of diabetes. In fact, the diabetes rate is three times the national average, with 25% of the community population being diagnosed with diabetes. Unfortunately, common indicators in Black communities, but this has to do with the lack of resources that's Systemic racism is responsible for. So let's just keep that in mind. It's also a food desert, which contributes to diabetes. I don't know if y'all have heard of a food desert, um, but that is a space, a place that has a lack of access to fresh food, doesn't have grocery stores, doesn't have any type of like farmer market situation. There's just not enough access to fresh foods for the population. Or rather, a food apartheid, shout out to Soulfire Farm, which introduced me to this term and is so much more accurate. We talk about food deserts, but food apartheid is more accurate because it indicates that there was a purposeful formation of these places with little access to food. And you could say, Celia, that sounds really sinister, but I will say 
you can look at works by Fannie Lou Hamer and some of the things she talked about. And she, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer, oh my gosh, I can't get into all the amazingness of this Black woman, but 20th century activist from Mississippi who was pushing to get Black people voting and also was just a huge supporter of Black people having land and growing their own food. And she was an advocate for this and a activist for this because there was clearly a lack of food infrastructure and access in Black communities. And this was very purposeful, you know, like starve these communities out basically because there was no desire to care for these communities in any way. Okay, that's my small little rant on that. So food apartheid, Eatonville has that experience on top of everything else. This is also rooted in some interesting things that I read in this incredible book called Zora Neale Hurston on Florida Food, which is a mixture of biographical information, recipes, and a cultural overview of Black rural, rural life in Florida. That word is so hard. Joe Clark, one of the founders, had a general store. And in Eatonville and so many other communities, not just Black ones, but especially in Black ones, general stores were the center of social life. Folks gathered on the porch and around the store to catch up with one another and to hear the latest town gossip. But they were also a place that supplied folks with whatever they needed and supported folks who couldn't afford to buy food by giving them store credit or allowing them to exchange items. General stores like Joe Clark's were pushed out by grocery store chains, and this transition started around the 19. 19- 20s. I mean, I think we can all agree that you don't go to a grocery store most of the time to connect with the community. You're trying to get in, you're trying to get out. At least that's my experience. I'm trying to get in and trying to get out. I don't want to be in there that long. But there was a time when you had these smaller community stores, you could get what you needed that you weren't able to grow yourself. And that's where you spent time also socializing those places are gone, replaced by grocery stores and grocery stores don't always stay or don't always have the means to support a whole community in the way that it needs to be supported. And this is sad because Zora also spoke of abundance growing up. Like I said, she was growing, well, her family was growing oranges, tangerines and grapefruits among other fruit trees and had good soil to maintain a relatively self-sustaining farm. But these situations definitely change in a world where farming as a profession isn't typically enough to support your family. These days, farming as a profession does not get enough credit. (laughs) It's so, so hard. I do my little bit of backyard gardening and that's a lot <laughs> in a little a little space in the backyard. And farming is hard, especially if you're trying to farm organically or garden organically, it's hard. And it's not a lucrative profession, as important as it is. We cannot survive without farms and farmers, but it's not a lucrative profession. 
And so a lot of people are not going into farming. They go into something that will support them economically and allow them to provide for their family. And so unfortunately, while there were many families in the town during Zora's childhood that had these really healthy farms and people could take care of themselves for the most part, of course, not everybody had these privileges, but a lot of people did. Nowadays, because of the shift in the economy and the kind of work that we value, there aren't really people farming. And as a result, the access to fresh food and things like that in Eatonville is not as great as it used to be. And people are getting diabetes. That is just the reality of it. And that's the reality in a lot of Black communities. The mayor and community leaders, however, at organizations like the Association to Preserve Eatonville Community Incorporated and Healthy Eatonville Place are encouraging town pride and a culture of health. I'll share some of the information about these orgs in the show notes. And I encourage you to learn about them and donate if you can. You know, tis the season to be given. A tech company called Hostime, which is a regional tech company, is constructing an office in Eatonville to provide a strong network connection and jobs to residents. But many folks work outside of the town, and that seemed to be the case in Zora's day too. Lots of folks did hard labor in other parts of the state, though they called Eatonville home. Folks say Zora saved Eatonville, and that's so true. Her legacy lives on in the town through the Zora Festival and all those who celebrate her. But we have to give so much kudos to N.Y. Nathiri, the executive director of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community Incorporated, and give some kudos to Mayor Eddie Cole, who has expressed a commitment to preserving the community and making it a healthy, stable home for residents new and old. I am so pleased to say, go visit. Yes, it still exists. Go visit during the festival or some other time. I'm just so happy that we have the opportunity to do so. Thank you for joining me on that journey to Eatonville. As promised, this podcast is about healing and we need to heal. Eatonville is still here but the impacts of racism have touched it and continue to do so. So let's talk about some plant medicine. As a reminder, I am providing a disclaimer that I am not a doctor or an herbalist. Talk to a doctor or an herbalist or both for more information, especially if you're on any kind of medication. Medications and herbs can interact with one another and be harmful, so be careful. That being said, if something sounds interesting to you, I'll share resources so you can learn more about it. So the plant we are talking about is native to Central Florida and many places in the Gulf South and Southeast, and that is saw palmetto. I have always thought this plant was just beautiful before I knew it was actually medicinal as well. 
I'm going to be pulling from this wonderful book I just got called Working the Roots Over 400 Years of Traditional African American Healing by Michelle E. Lee. And I love it so far. And I will also share it in the show notes. And I will be likely pulling from this throughout the podcast. You will hear me flipping through some of the pages. Don't mind me. Sapa Meadows Botanical Name is Saranoa Repens. Do not quote me on that pronunciation. And it's also known as Dwarf Palmetto, Pan Palm, and Sabal. It is anti-inflammatory, antiseptic, and aphrodisiac. I know y'all have heard of that one before. A diuretic, let me get that definition for you, which increases urination and reduces fluid retention and aids kidneys. And is an expectorant. Let me get that definition for you, which brings up mucus and other material from the lungs, bronchi and trachea, and promotes drainage in the respiratory tract, as well as a sedative, which I am sure you also have heard of. Nothing wrong with a little relaxation. According to this book, it was important to the Seminole Nation and other indigenous people in the area. So likely the Tumukua as well. Let's give it up for these people who discovered the benefits of this plant thousands of years before it became the supplement that you can now buy at a vitamin shop chain. Indigenous people used it for medicine, but they also used it to make food, brooms, baskets, and ropes. Working the Roots also says that Folks would dry the palmetto berries, ground them, and make a nutritious flour or a tonic to treat stomach, digestion, respiratory, and urinary tract disorders or to increase milk in nursing mothers. The inner bark of the trunk would be made into a poultice to treat snake bites, insect bites, skin ulcers, and infections. And... It is popularly known today for supporting prostate health, treating bladder and testicular inflammation and urinary tract disorders. Yeah, that is what I've seen on the internet is it's true. These days, I mostly see it advertised as a medicine to decrease the symptoms of an enlarged prostate, um, to minimize hair loss, and to increase libido. So It seems that modern science also agrees with what the indigenous ancestors and what the African ancestors found when using saw palmetto berries specifically and the inner part of the trunk. What I've also found is that some of the potential side effects could be bad breath, constipation, diarrhea, dizziness, fatigue, headache, nausea, stomach pain and vomiting, to name a few, from Very Well Health, which was the website that I used to find that information. Does that sound scary? Yes, but there's a balance to everything. Have y'all heard the disclaimers for drugs in commercials on TV? Scary stuff. I'm just going to share something very personally about myself. I'm highly sensitive And I found that some things that people swear by are just too much for me. So again, talk to your doctors and or an herbalist. Test things out in small amounts and slowly 
and listen to your body. If this is something you're interested in, I'm not saying don't, don't try it, but do it responsibly. I don't know about you, but I am so grateful that the earth provides us medicine like this. And I am so grateful to you for joining me for this week's Unsettled Lives. Again, if you are from any of the places I spotlight, know any good stories, or just generally want to talk, reach out to me via email at unsettledlivespod at gmail.com or at unsettledlivespod on Instagram. You can also share your reactions to these stories and how you felt learning something new. Talk to you again in two weeks. Bye.